Hello and welcome to the latest of our fortnightly Funds Fan podcast, brought to you by Interactive Investor in conjunction with Money Observer and MoneyWise magazines. I'm Faith Glasgow, I'm the editor of Money Observer, and with me today are Deputy Editor Kyle Caldwell, who's just back from paternity leave, and II Fund Analyst Theodore Diloff. Later in the programme, we'll be talking to Stuart Widowson, who manages the £76 million Odyssean Investment Trust. Now, Kyle, I know you've been out of the loop with your new arrival, but you've been catching up with the news attracting the attention of fund investors. One piece of news, which is arguably not so surprising for many of us, is that Mark Barnett is to leave Invesco after 24 years there. It does seem like a, a, a classic example of a fallen star. He's been criticised a lot recently for the prolonged underperformance of his funds and for the presence of very liquid small cap holdings and and unquoted companies in them as well. So, Carl, can you tell us a little bit more about it? The writing had been on the wall for a while, particularly over the past six months or so, because last December he was um, backed as manager of uh, Edinburgh Investment Trust. Um, and then a few months after that, it was uh, he then lost the management of the Perpetual Income and Growth Investment Trust. If we cast our minds back to June 2014, when he took over all of the various funds that were managed at Invesco by Neil Woodford, he was the obvious candidate to take over. Neil was his mentor, and as a result, Barnett had a similar value-style investment philosophy to Neil Woodford. He made a reasonably good start when he took over the various funds, particularly the two biggest funds, Invesco High Income and Invesco Income. But the performance started to deteriorate around about the same time as the um, EU referendum votes took place. And the chief reason was because Mark Barnett had a big position towards UK domestically focused stocks, just like his mentor, in fact. And this area of the stock market was hit hard following the vote for Brexit. And for a good couple of years now, domestic stocks have been firmly out of favour. And this has caught out a number of other UK fund managers. Barnett stuck to this position, but ultimately it did not pay off. And to my mind, when Mark Barnett had addressed his underperformance to investors, it felt to me like he was arguing that the market was wrong to persistently focus on quality growth businesses. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that ultimately, he, you know, he argued his valuation focus would pay off. Ultimately, the, the market did not turn for him. Barnett had exposure to um, some illiquid and smaller companies and as well as um, unquoted holdings in the funds. And this did not really help matters in terms of um, having the effect of raising potential liquidity concerns. His funds did have a much smaller allocation to unquoted stocks than Neil Woodford's. Um, he had around 5% last November. But interestingly, before Mark Barnett left Invesco, the the decision was taken in early April to begin the process of writing down 60% of the unquoted stocks that were held across the various portfolios. So obviously this was a sign that Invesco were keen to move away from these assets. Do you know who's going to be taking over his funds? Two internal appointments have been made, James Goldston and Kieran Mallon. They're both going to take over as co-managers of the various open-ended funds, Barnett managers, while they're... Martin Walker, who's head of UK equities at Invesco, is going to manage Perpetual Income and Growth Investment Trust until a new manager for that is a sort by the board. Both Goldstone and Mallon, they're not novices. For a number of years now, they've ran other portfolios. But to be honest, they've not particularly made name, names for themselves, I, I would say, in producing outstanding, eye-catching 
performance. When I had to look at performance numbers over certain time periods, it was more bordering on middle ground performance rather than shooting the lights out. As ever, time will tell. And obviously, um, Invesco are obviously confident uh, in both their abilities as um, they've made internal appointments rather than... Uh, look outside the business. One area of focus in recent Funds Fan podcasts has been the scale of dividend cuts. Relatively good news very recently from Winterflood that only 32 investment trusts out of around 250 dividend paying trusts have actually cut their dividends this year. Of the amount of investment trusts that pay dividends, only around just less than 15% so far. This data was up until the 25th of May and from the start of March have made uh, changes to the dividend policies. Um, obviously, a lot of companies have not made any statements at all to the market. So, you know, that figure could creep up in the coming weeks and months. But when you look under the bonnet and look at um, which sectors of investment trusts have taken action on the dividend front, the vast majority either invest in property or adopt a very specialist investment focus. Of the 32, 15 are property trusts that have cut or suspended dividends. So how have um, equity income sectors been affected? Are there Have there been any casualties there? In terms of UK equities, to date, there have only been three trusts that have either cut or suspended dividends, and they are British and American, Invesco Perpetual, UK smaller companies, and Troy Income and Growth. And the key reason why it's such a small amount is to do with the investment trust structure, which allows investment trusts to put 15% of income generated each year into a reserve fund. In times such as these, um, when scores of UK companies have cut dividends, the reserves can be drawn on to keep on paying a rising level of income to shareholders or maintaining the previous uh, dividend. A number of UK equity income trusts are dividend heroes, having grown payouts year in, year out for, for, you know, for decades. And in my opinion, boards will view any cut as a last, last resort because they want to maintain these stellar dividend track records. They're a big draw for existing investors and also for prospective new investors. As far as we know at the moment, no casualties at all in the global equity income sector. As far as I'm aware, from, just based on the data from Winterflood, um, it's you know so far so good. But obviously, we'll keep um, listeners informed over the coming episodes. Open-ended funds have had a, a tougher ride because they don't have the luxury of that ability to retain dividends and build reserves for leaner years. But one open-ended fund that, that has nonetheless uh, managed to avoid div- dividend cuts very successfully in this difficult period is the Guinness Global Equity Income Fund, which is run by Matthew Page and Ian Mortimer. Kyle, a bit more information, please. Well, it's, uh, it's a bit of a feat, really, isn't it, given how many global businesses have cut or suspended dividends that um, this fund has not had any dividend casualties um, as of yet. Obviously, given it's a global equity income fund, it is, it's easier for a global funds compared to a UK equity income fund to avoid a huge number of dividend cuts, given they can cast their nets far and wide. But um, nonetheless, you know, I'm not, not trying to knock the achievements. It is impressive that not one single holding is a cut. How have they done it? What have they been focusing on? Well, the managers generally look for companies with a reliably high return on capital, as well as strong balance sheets. And they say as a result of this, they've avoided many of the troubled sectors of the economy, such as house builders, restaurants, banks, energy companies, and the airliners. And their approach leads them more toward having big positions in consumer staples and healthcare. Well, there's no guarantee that they'll be able to hold hold out until the end of this pandemic, whenever that occurs. But nonetheless, congratulations to them. Now, 
now welcome to Stuart Widowson. Thanks for joining us, Stuart. You left Strategic Equity Capital in 2017 and launched Odyssean Investment Trust in May the following year. It's a UK smaller companies focus, but it's very concentrated with the top 10 holdings accounting for about 70% of the portfolio. When you were a strategic, you did take a pretty hands-on approach in your investment smaller companies. Is that the way you're running Odyssean? It's exactly the same hands-on uh, active approach to the way we select our investments and also manage them. So we invest in quoted smaller companies using a private equity mindset and, and also private equity techniques. Both my colleague Ed Virchowski and I combined have about 15 years experience of private equity investment on top of almost 18 years experience of investing in quoted small companies. The key difference is really our mindset. We're seeking to make a return, so make a positive return for our shareholders over the long term, not to not an index. And the goal of that really is, is to double our money every five years, which is equivalent to a 15% IRR. So there are three things we think you know we do quite differently, which is how we value companies, the quality bar that we put up and what we're particularly looking for. And finally, the engagement. And we're looking for a very small number of companies to put in a portfolio where we see opportunities for all three, a valuation opportunity and a good company that could be a better company. And once we're invested, we'll engage with those companies, their stakeholders to try and help positive change and, and drive an improvement that's that's not related to the market. Nonetheless, the, the market sell-off must have hit your holdings pretty hard, I guess, given that the, the, the UK smaller companies were particularly decimated. I mean, Odyssean has, has, has performed pretty well over the, the past three months in relative terms, both in, in net asset value and in share price terms. So what factors in particular would you say would account for that? Before I sort of address that, I mean, I think the key thing is we tend to look at rolling three-year performance rather than shorter time periods. There, there can be a lot of noise in markets. But over a decade of managing money in this particular style, we've tended to find that the style means that the NAV behaves quite different to the broader peer group of small company investors. And we tend to get most of our outperformance in down or sideways markets. And return, we tend to find the NAV tends to rise less strongly in quick market recoveries. But we tend to get any relative outperformance or, or underperformance back quite quickly. We think the, the, the differentiated NAV performance is down to a bunch of factors. And, you know, the first quarter this year was, was unusual because there were probably more factors driving the differentiated performance. The first thing is we, we don't really invest in speculative growth or fashion stocks. You know, the types of things you'll see suddenly going up 100% or 200% or, you know, very you know, favourites on bulletin boards for retail investors. We, we don't tend to invest in those those types of situations. We much prefer steady companies that have been around for a long time. The second is we, we don't uh, invest in oil and gas companies. It's a sector that doesn't really work for our style. And the main driver of returns is not in management's control. You know, sometimes it works in our favour. Sometimes it works against us, but we just don't do oil and gas. Thirdly, we use the investment company structure, not because we want to gear our portfolio. Uh, we want to run a very concentrated portfolio without being a forced seller, uh, which you might be in, a, in an open-ended or unit trust structure. And we actually tend to run with net cash over the long term. We've, we haven't given the vehicle for years. And over the long term, I think the average cash has been 8 or 9%. We actually took money off the table in January and February. We felt the market had run quite hard post the election result in, in December. And a number of our companies were, were still looking good, but maybe less attractive than they were maybe a year ago. I think the final factor is because we are focused on the absolute valuation of companies we, we look to buy in, 
we don't just jump on a bandwagon of a stock that's going up in a company that's too expensive. We will avoid or, or even sell out of that holding. So we are very valuation disciplined as well. So we think it's a whole bunch of factors. Actually, the final one, I think we were fortunate that one of our portfolio companies got taken over in March as well, which obviously was a good thing in a market that was falling. You mentioned the, the share price as well. And, and as your readers that are familiar with Investment Trust know, discounts can impact returns uh, and they tend to be, you know, they can be sort of more volatile in, in different periods. We worked very hard when we launched the trust to get a very good long-term shareholder base, many of whom, you know, we've known for more than seven years and, and really they're in it for the long term. And we don't really have, you know, we're pretty off the radar of retail investors. We, we have a pretty stable base. We've got good discount controls. And we think, uh, you know, that's all contributed to the rating remaining probably narrower than the broader peer group. Stuart, having, as you as you mentioned just then, about you raised your cash position earlier this year, obviously following the market falls in February and March, have you been putting some of that cash back into work, into the, into the market? And have any new stocks or any sectors that you already favour, have they become even more interesting now following those falls? So, by way of background, we tend to make four or five new investments a year. We made three in March, which for us was a, a very busy month. Um, but these were companies that we'd known for a very long time. You know, we, we have a finite universe of companies that we've researched and we've met over many years. So we pretty much know where we'd like to put the money. We've been working on a, almost a one-in-one-out basis since about the middle of March. You know, I think where we're seeing the opportunities is, is really is sectors that we have invested in the past, but we've been less keen on over the last couple of years. We, we have four sectors we tend to invest in, TMT, so telecoms, media, technology, specialist industrials, business services, and healthcare. And those four combined for, account for about 93% of the portfolio. We've probably been quite light on industrials over the last couple of years because they tend to be more cyclical businesses. The earnings are slightly more volatile. And that served as well going into this year because um, those companies have been quite heavily hit. However, that's probably where we see the most interesting medium to long-term uh, opportunities now in our, in our universe. About the 10% cash holding, is, is, do you aim to keep that amount in cash as a as a principle, or, or is that a reflection of relative caution in this climate, would you mm. say, or, or is it that you just haven't seen enough opportunities recently? I mean, we typically run with cash, we say normally between 5 and 15%. Uh, what we're looking for is is the right investment opportunity at the right time with the right liquidity and, and you know waiting for all those three stars to align. I think we've been quite surprised by the speed of the or the the level of the bounces and some of the companies that have been that were hit quite hard through March and April. And if you look at some of these individual companies, the share prices are already starting to price in a pretty good recovery for the next two to three years, which we think is pretty optimistic. As we move through the summer, we would expect when these companies come out of their interim results, investors to suddenly look at how bad the first half was, work out you know, what they need to do to hit their full year numbers in the second half and work out that actually there's a reasonable probability the companies just aren't going to hit numbers. And we, we'd expect some of these share prices to probably move back to levels that we find more interesting. We know where we'd like to invest. It's a matter of the right time, the right price, and the right liquidity. And we're very happy to be patient. We like having cash. Yes, we can give up a bit of underperformance when markets rally strongly, but cash is king. 
you mentioned a couple of times there the the L word liquidity, which mm. um, has gained a lot more prominence in the fund management industry over the past eighteen months following the uh, Neil Wolford debacle. Just hoping you could go into a bit more detail in regards to liquidity, how much of a concern it is for you, given the nature of your concentrated portfolio. I think you're right in terms of the fund manager industry focusing much more on liquidity and its importance. But we're very fortunate because we don't manage money in open-ended fund structures where tomorrow you could find your clients wanting to redeem their assets and take their money out of your fund. And, you know, that, that is where liquidity is a problem. One of the benefits of a closed-ended investment company is you pretty much know how much money you're going to be managing over the medium, medium term, certainly over the short term. So we can use the illiquidity of our underlying holdings to our benefit. We can stay in for the long term. We can, you know, we are willing to go and invest in less liquid companies because, you know, the fund structure allows us to do that. And that's typically where you'll get premium returns over the long term. I noticed on the, what, the latest fact sheet that three of the holdings are more than 10% in terms mm. of individual holdings. Is that, does that show that you like to run your winners and do you have like an upper limit in, in order to perhaps to ensure that um, the risk level of the trust doesn't exceed a certain parameter? We're not allowed to invest in more than 15% of the NAV in a single company at cost. Um, and typically, um, once it gets towards 15%, we typically sell down a little bit. A Above you know 10% is a strong conviction holding for us. If you take into account our stock selection criteria and the things we're looking for and all the work we do, it's rare to find companies that really tick our boxes. When we do, we want to be conviction investors in the moment. As a really good example, one of our top holdings, SDL, it's the first investment that we made soon after IPO about two years ago. And we'd, we'd known the company a long time and we were convinced the stock was materially mispriced. Despite the, the difficulties the market's happened, had over the last few months, I think point to point, the stock's up almost 25%. And we think it's still very, very good over the next three to five years. And the risk reward of, of that investment, we think is absolutely compelling. So we're very happy to run that. In reality, because of the work we do, both in terms of pre-investment, all the research we do, but also engagement, we can't have a big portfolio. You know, we really want to know our stocks well. And uh, that's really what leads to the, the portfolio shape. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for sparing time to talk to us. It's uh, really interesting to hear a bit more about your investment trust and good luck with it. Thank you. Finally, for this podcast, we go over to Theodore Diloff, who has selected another fund from Interactive Investors' Super 60 list of preferred funds to talk about. My pick for this week is TI European Growth Trust, which was launched in 1990 and targets long-term capital growth through a diversified portfolio of smaller European companies with exceptional growth potential. The trust has been run by Holly Beckett since 2011, who is supported by Rory Stokes and Julia Schuffler, and they select companies from their investable universe of over 2,000 possibilities based on their stage of life cycle. What sort of companies does it invest in? The managers take an unconstrained approach, which results in a well-diversified at the country and sector level portfolio of between 120 and 150 stocks. There is a bias towards small and medium-sized companies with about 85% of the trust invested in stocks with market cap of below 1 billion. And position sizes are totally based on the manager's degree of conviction, although they rarely exceed 2%. At the country level, the trust remains significantly overweight in Germany, France, and Switzerland. On a sector level, the portfolio is overweight in industrial goods and technology. Among the top 10 companies, you can find names such as the Dutch wealth manager, uh, Van Lockrod, French cable manufacturer, Nexans, and the Danish shipping and logistics companies, 
GFGS. What, in your view, makes it a special selection? I think TR European Growth looks unlike other trusts in the sector because of its unique investment process and high exposure to value stocks. Basically, through looking at companies based on the stage they are in their life cycle, the manager has built a portfolio with highly differentiated blend of stocks at different stages of their growth perspectives. In addition, the current discount of around 16% could be an attractive entry point to the trust for those who believe the worst is behind us in recovery weights. And looking at performance, the strategy uh, has benefited from the recent rally in small caps and delivered a total return of 24% just in April, which was about 15% above the MSCI Europex UK small cap benchmark. Finally, what kind of an investor would you say it's going to be most appropriate for? This strategy has a bias towards small and mid-cap stocks, which makes it one of the higher risk options for European equity exposure. But patient investments could be rewarded over the long term. Ideally, this, this trust could be utilized as a satellite holding in a diversified portfolio, and its dividend yield of nearly 3% should provide support for total returns in periods of market volatility. Thank you very much. That's all for today. Thank you to all our guests, and we'll see you in a few weeks' time.